Just for fun, I'm going to read a few song titles for you. It shouldn't take you more than a second or two to figure out what's going on here. Uh, Could it be magic? Mandy? I write the songs. Looks like we made it. Even now. Copacabana. Of course, we're talking about Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow was the king. Barry was a singing, songwriting force all through the 70s and into the 80s, knocking out just amazing song after song, especially kind of those rainy day, you know, kind of love songs or heartbreak songs. And he was good at it. He was amazing. And by 1984, the guy was at the top of his game. There's just no getting around that. And he could probably work on any type of project that he wanted to. And he, I don't know the the entire backstory, but I think he took a tremendous interest into the old jazz greats. And he decided he wanted to do a very different, special kind of record. So he gathered together a handful of just amazing old jazz musicians and a couple uh, special guest singers that popped in and helped out also. And they went to a a rehearsal studio in North Hollywood. And depending on which version of the story you believe, they were there for somewhere between three and seven days, something like that. And they knocked out this project called 2AM Paradise Cafe. And here's the thing. It is a collection of songs, And a lot of them are jazz standards, but they wanted to do it as one piece, one body of work, meaning they were going to go into the recording studio and actually record a set, record, in essence, a live album with no overdubs, no uh, do-overs, you know, they were just going to do it. And... So they they packed up and they went to Westlake Studio C. Again, this is 1984. So there's no Pro Tools. There's no shortcuts. They were recording straight to analog tape. And they commissioned my old friend Michael Bronstein, Michael B., to engineer the project. No small feat, man. I mean, it's just, it's got to be, it's, it's as if you're doing a live recording, like a concert recording. Michael did an amazing job. And this is not only a great sounding record, it's the record just has a great feel. It literally just flows from song to song to song as if you're in a club listening to these guys play it live because that's what they were doing. Number one, I want you to buy this record. Uh, Barry doesn't need the uh, <laughs> Barry doesn't need the plug from Brad Sundberg, but it's a really special record that you need to listen to from top to bottom. You can't find it on Spotify. You don't just want to hear one or two songs on YouTube. You really need to hear the record. It's going to cost you like six bucks on Amazon, and you're going to thank me for it. So, two a.m. Paradise Cafe. In a moment, I'm going to introduce you to Michael Bronstein. Michael is an old friend of mine literally since 1984. That's when I first met him and when I started working at Westlake. And I want you to hear his story, how he wound up working on this project. And then we're going to dig into the project itself. He's got some some amazing memories from uh, his days at the record plant and kind of the rough and raucous days of uh, the recording world in Los Angeles in the early 80s. So I think you're going to enjoy it. And I'm very excited to present this to you. My name is Brad Sundberg. I want you to hang out with us here in the studio, the podcast. I've already given a bit of an introduction, but you and I met, if I'm not mistaken, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty certain of this, in 1984. That was the year that I moved to Los Angeles and got my job at Westlake Audio, but I don't, we don't need to talk about that. I want to hear about you. Who, who are you? How, how did you get started in the music industry? Wow. 
Uh, who are you? That's great. Well, you know, you and I have, have spoken and chatted and, and you know, I, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which coincidentally is about 30 miles away from a small town called Shenandoah, Iowa, okay. uh, the home of the Everly Brothers, great influential uh, duo from the 50s who, who influenced everybody from the Beatles to the Hollies to Crosby, Stills and Nash and so on. Hmm. And uh, in addition, Shenandoah, Shenandoah, Iowa, very small town, was the birthplace and home of a young man named Gary Calgren, who graduated from high school in 1957, moved to New York, uh, joined the Air Force briefly, I believe. Then he started a studio uh, he worked at Mayfair and he started a studio called The Record Plant. In New York? In New York, okay. along with a guy named Chris Stone. Of course. And uh, what, what year did they start that? Oh, gosh, 66, I want to wow. say. Wow. 66. Okay. Yeah. Gary Calgren was an engineer for, actually, he did, he did albums with Frank Zappa. And also, uh, he, he's credited on one of Frank Zappa's albums, gosh, Overnight Sensation, I think. And, and Gary also worked with uh, Jimi Hendrix, which was really interesting because he and Jimi ended up building a studio that was, you know, reportedly and arguably the first studio that did away with the old fluorescent lights, the engineer, the white shirt and the tie, right. you know, the kind of images that all of all of us music lovers know of the Buddy Holly story, you right. know, the guys or or the George Martin thing with the old Beatles stuff where it's just a cold, sterile environment. Well, working with Hendrix was a whole other kettle of fish. So Calgren designed a studio with dimmers on the lights, tie dye on the walls. Everything was you know, very relaxed and laid back, which is totally contraposed. So that arguably the record plant sort of started that fashion in studios. And then he and Chris got together. Chris was a vice president at Revlon. And he said, you know, I can make you a lot of money. They built the record plant in New York. It was so hugely successful. They sold it to uh, a large label uh entity and you, said we'll continue on purpose this is getting here okay we'll continue to manage it for you because we know all the ins and outs of making of building a studio of course so they took the money from that sale built the la record plant and then somehow the clientele at the New York record plant just started cratering. I mean, you know, nobody was coming in. They, they were losing money. And so Gary and Chris, who were still managing it, right. <laughs> Gary and Chris, oh gosh, business is terrible, but I'll tell you what, we'll buy the studio back from you. <laughs> Pennies on the dollar. Exactly. So I they love bought it. the New York record plant back and then sold it again, I believe it was to Roy Sakala, and sold it the second time and used that money to build a record plant in Sausalito. Sausalito. Left New York entirely. All of a sudden, we've got two very user-friendly studios, one in Los Angeles, one in Sausalito, and that's kind of the birth of the record plant. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm growing up in Omaha. Okay. And how I got interested in audio, I was always the guy at sock hops or grade school parties who would move the speakers around like, Oh, you know, it sounds better if the speakers over here in the corner. Right. You know, oh, that's and then all of a sudden my, or finally my parents bought me a silver tone portable stereo record player with two speakers that detached and you could move them around. Okay. And so I went, wow, you know, I've got these extra speakers. If I, if I, splice those on i can have four speakers and so i started playing with audio and just listening to records over and over the very first record i bought was the battle of camp cucamonga by who is that by i don't know flats and scrugs or somebody i don't know goofy record and carried on from there and uh loved music you know and, and eventually quit playing football and got in a rock and roll band as a lead singer. 
And that, okay, solid, okay. that solidified my two interests, which were music and, well, actually music and, and science. So all of a sudden I'm the lead singer in, in a band, a pop band singing Wooly Bully and, and uh, Wait Till the Midnight Hour and stuff as a junior in high school. That got me even more interested in music. And eventually I found out that you could get even closer to the girls if you were sitting at a console out in front of the stage. You could schmooze with the babes. Right there. Yep. Yeah, you could schmooze with the babes, sit there casually and smoke your camels and drink your martinis <laughs> while you're at, at control of this huge, massive sound system that can make their heart throb. Right. And so I said, yeah, this is for me. I like this. This is this is much more control. I like this. Michael. And uh, that so I was doing live sound. My first my first really big live sound gig was probably 1970 or so. Um, and and I mixed Weather Report live at a college concert. Seriously. Yeah, I've even got a videotape of it because I also they didn't have video in 1970. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah, I also fell into using a porta pack, a Sony porta pack, which was an original open reel, half inch black and white recorder that weighed 27 pounds and okay. this big clunky camera. And so I would record videos of of these bands, you know, in 1970. And uh, and so that really got me into the AV thing. Meanwhile, I'm going to college. Okay. And I'm sitting in my apartment. And this is still in Omaha. Yeah, in Omaha. Huh. I'm sitting there. I'm going to college, 1969, sitting in my apartment with a roommate who grew up in Beverly Hills, who's turning me on to arguably my five favorite bands. Of course, I love the Beatles. Right. But Spirit, Traffic, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Right. And... I'm sitting there smoking massive amounts of hashish, going to pre-med and, and getting ready to go to med school and, and just zoning in on these records, <laughs> listening to how the guitar comes out of one side and then over to the other side and just eating up and, and reading every liner note to see who, who arranged the horns on this song. And that really, really enhanced my interest That's you know, awesome. in, in in hearing how Andrew Lug Oldham or or uh, Jimmy Miller, Jimmy Miller mixing and producing traffic. Good God. So here I am in 1969 listening to these guys. Five years later, I recorded every single one of them in L.A. Wow. I didn't make a plan. I didn't plan to be a recording engineer. I didn't make a plan to get a job at the record plant. It, it all just sort of fell down like falling downstairs. And, and I can't explain how. I mean, I, I was ready. You know, I was ready to, to do that, to step into that, because I was doing some recording here in Omaha. Right. At, you know, in our own little home studio with the band I was working with. So... It, it amazes me. I mean, literally, I would sit and listen to Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and five years later, I'm sitting chatting with Al Cooper about his first record production, working on Leonard Skinner with The Man. I, I, I want to break down just a little bit of what you just said. Yeah. Um, so you're in Omaha. You had what you just described as like a home studio. Is that what you said? I was working with a band called the Agonetso Wahalia Blues Ensemble Mondo Bizarro Band otherwise known as Ogden Edsel. Their big hit was a, was a song called Dead Puppies. And uh, wait, Dr. Wait, wait, Demento... Wait, wait. Dr. Demento, I know yes. that song. Okay. Yep. Wait, did you so, record Dead Puppies? Dead Puppies, we recorded the released version at Record Plant Studio C. Uh, the song was written probably around 1973. Right, right. And we were here in Omaha, and we were all living... Well, those of us who weren't living in our parents' basement, we were all living in a, in a gutted, equipment gutted recording studio. And we were renting it for 110 bucks a month. And there were like seven or eight of us living in there. Okay. 
and you know in various rooms and we kept borrowing equipment we we put together video and audio and we'd blow into wichita kansas say at a, at a bar named mothers and <laughs> and set up like 10 or 12 black and white tvs all through the bar and i would set up a couple video cameras and we would run live video to these TVs. People would walk in. This is 1972, 73. That's amazing. Okay. This is before the tubes. No, I get it. Yeah. And and so we started doing music videos. Uh, we would run music videos between songs. We'd run videos with the songs that we were playing. So it was a nine-piece band, and I was doing the video, the audio, and producing the music and trying to get them to move in one direction or another. Okay. And, and we, we went around the Midwest and nobody got us. Nobody right. understood what the hell are these people doing? So, and, so for, for my listeners, you really need to pause just for a minute and, okay. and jump on. I, I doubt the dead puppies is on Spotify, but I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. And oh, it just, absolutely is. Just give dead puppies a quick listen. So you get a context of what we're talking about, but yeah. carry on. Yeah, so so I turned to the band um, in January of 1974, and I said, guys, nobody's going to get us here. Nobody's going to understand it. we got to go to L.A. if we're going to make it big. So nine of us packed up in two cars wow. and a trailer and drove to L.A. 1974. Yep. I love it. 1974, okay. we got into L.A. in June, on June 1st or 2nd, 1974. A guy named Kelly Cotera, who is the maintenance man at the record plant in L.A., was from Omaha. He befriended us. He supported us. He took us into the record plant to cut some songs. When you're that naive, you have no idea. So we're in Studio C on downtime doing, doing the Ogden Edsel demos and stuff that turned out to be an album, including Dead Puppies. Meanwhile, in Studio B at Record Plant is Stevie Wonder. In Studio A at the Record Plant are the Eagles. Right. And bouncing back and forth. I mean, it's just, you know, it, you know what it was like you're, in 1984 right in the of, yeah. at Westlake. Yeah. You know, every studio is filled with some stellar, ridiculously top flight act. So the band I was with that moved there from Omaha ended up breaking up three weeks after we got there we had we had set we had gigs booked at the troubadour at, at the whiskey we played the whiskey we played the comedy store we played everywhere in la and one of the guys quit and that just pulled the plug on the whole thing and i said man the weather is too nice i'm going to stay here i tried to get a job at radio shack the guy said, you'll have to cut your hair. And I said, no problem, man. I, I got like 30 bucks left. I need a job. Right. And uh, I said, I'll cut my hair. A couple days later, Kelly Katera called me from the record plant and said, hey, man, there's an opening for a second engineer here. I think I can get you in. I wow. said, sure. How much does it pay? Two fifty-seven an hour. All right, I'm in. I'm down. Mm -hmm. When do I start? Well, you got to come in. You got to interview. Okay. Correct. So I started in July of 1974. And I almost got fired because my first gig was as a carpenter's helper building the infamous bedrooms back in the back of the record plant. Oh, wow. Here we go. Yeah. Okay. Have you heard about the bedrooms? Well, we were going to get to the hot tub in a minute, but, but carry on. Yeah, the hot tub was the hot tub was clean living compared to the bedrooms. We built bedrooms in the summer of 1974. I already mentioned that the record plant was in the vanguard of Creature Comfort Studios. Right. Which and Chris Stone said, Hey, wait a minute. These groupies are coming in at two o'clock in the morning. And of course, you know, it was a high security studio, but nobody says no to a groupie who Stephen Stills says yes to. Yeah, right. And Chris Stone goes, wait a minute, these groupies are coming in at two and three in the morning, and all of a sudden the session's over. I'm billing $150 I'm an hour. Yeah, and where's all that money going down the tube to a groupie who's taking these guys home? I know, let's build bedrooms in the back. 
<laughs> they can spend a half hour, 45 minutes, but they're still on the clock. Right. And then they come back to the studio and get back to work and work until the vacuum cleaners come out in the hallway and send them home for the day. So these bedrooms ended up being one called the plant room, which was very airy fairy with a skylight. One called the rack room, which had a working medieval rack for a bed. Yeah. Uh, and then the third one, they brought in a yacht builder from Martha's Vineyard to build a bedroom that was like the inside of a yacht with curved wood and, you know, and porthole windows and so on. So those three bedrooms became infamous and part of record plant lore. There are stories to be told, which we'll wait for another time. Of, of course, but you you helped build them, so that was that yeah. Was that was my gig. first gig, and the carpenter didn't like me because I wasn't laughing at his racially directed jokes. He was okay. from Georgia, you know. Right, and this right. guy from Georgia is a great carpenter, but he the, just had these jokes, and I and I did not laugh at him, and he did not like that. So he decided to get rid of me. <laughs> he went to Chris Stone and said, you know, I, this guy, this guy is not a great carpenter. You got to fire him. Chris Stone called me on the carpet and said, hey, man, Larry said you're not doing a great job. And I said, well, there's a couple of reasons why Larry would say that. And he said, well, we're going to have to let you go because, you know, he's running the show back there. I right. said, yeah, you know, you have an option. What's that? Well, you know, I wanted to be a second engineer. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. Hmm. OK, we'll give you a second chance. And he put me on a couple sessions as a second engineer. So that was July 21st when I started at the record plant. By October 31st, I had my first gold album as an engineer. That's amazing. So what was your first gold album? Rufusized. Wow. With Shaka Khan and yep. Rufus. So how old were you, approximately? 26. Seriously? Yeah. So go back for a second, because a lot of people that, that are listening really don't know i mean record plant in in our industry i mean that's that's ground zero i mean there were there were a handful of of studios that were just where everything was happening just describe you know what walking into record plant was like in 19 because i don't know i mean i was there in the late 80s but but tell me what it was like in the mid 70s well it really reflected the personality of gary calgren and Gary was a, a free spirit, and his design sensibilities were unique. Tie-dye, comfort, uh, lighting, everything was, was just very, very creature comfort oriented and personalized. For Hotel California, and many, many, uh, many albums that were done in Studio C, bands would bring in Carpets, um, sofas, floor lamps, end tables, coffee tables, and so on, and turn it into a living space. And that's that's how you know that's that's how Studio C was. But the entire place just reeked family. Okay. You would you would walk in, you'd have to get buzzed in the front door. Sure. To your right would be an entrance to Studio A. And in Studio A, there's cork board on the walls right. and, and direct lighting and, and uh, tie-dyed walls and so on. And then you go down the, the hallway, and the, the hallway was open to the ceiling, uh, to, to the sky. Okay. It's just the anomaly of the way the building had progressed as it was built on uh, over the years. And, and it literally was open to the sky. It had all-weather outdoor, indoor-outdoor, uh, very, very um, thin carpet. Mm -hmm. And it had a drain. It had, had two drains that okay. drained because sometimes rain would come in. If it was really rainy, the janitor would go up and he'd put these plexiglass covers over it that okay. would drain it to the roof. There's a ladies' room and a men's room separate with Hawaiian motif uh, paintings on the doors and basically normal bathrooms, except there was an extra door in each of them. There was an okay. extra door in the ladies' room, an extra door in the men's room. If you open those two doors at the same time, or 
they both went into the same space. Okay. So there's like a little secret meeting room between the two right. restrooms that went into a sauna, a full bore Swedish sauna that okay. could fit like eight people. And uh, then there was a regular canteen with a you know huge 75 gallon aquarium. Um, and then the famous jacuzzi room. When I was a runner at Westlake or when I was kind of, you know, earning my uh, my, my stripes in, in the music world, among the runners, I mean, whether you're at Westlake or Larrabee or wherever, it's like record plan has this jacuzzi. What what was up with that jacuzzi? Did you ever use the record plant jacuzzi? Oh, yes, I ever used the record plant jacuzzi. <laughs> um, the jacuzzi was there from the beginning. There, okay. it was, the the studio could have been built around it. I'm not sure, but it had a uh, it had a wooden plank floor with separations between it so that water could drain down, you know, through the through the wood like a deck. Right. Like a deck, and it had a water bed and a chair, and every door at the record plant, whether it was to a studio, a bathroom, a closet. Every door had a bolt on the inside. Okay. So if you were in a room that you did not want to be disturbed. You want some privacy. You could have all the keys in the world and you could not get into that room. So what was it as debaucherious? Is that a word? Was, yes. was there as much uh, rowdy debaucherism going on as, as one might ex- one might imagine? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, was. I mean, 70s in Los Angeles in general were, you know, were, were pretty raunchy. But uh, it, it, there was nothing more frustrating than the jacuzzi being bolted for like three hours. You know, <laughs> that person who came out of the jacuzzi after having it bolted for three hours, that person was on a brown list, for which is like one <laughs> notch below a blacklist for, for weeks because okay. you did not do that. In December of 1974, I met Denny, who was a receptionist at the front desk. Mm-hmm. And I just was smitten. Okay. Now, she wanted to be an engineer, and she found her way into the studio, into the control room, and she ended up being a great engineer. And uh, we became romantically involved in March of 1975. And so we became a couple. Mm-hmm. She mixed the single More Than a Feeling by Boston. Holy cow. Yeah, she was good. Now, this ties into 2 a.m. Paradise Cafe. Okay. Believe it or not. Because Danny and I stayed together for five years. Ended up getting divorced uh, by 1980. And uh, it was kind of, you know, kind of emotional, kind of turmoil. Right. But by 1980... When Denny and I ended up breaking up, I had worked with, you know, everybody. Right, um, right. You know, Grand Funk, Frank Zappa, the Eagles, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Stephen Stills, just a, a number of people. The two big names that I worked with consistently were Stephen Stills and Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. So anyway... By 1980, when when Denny and I split up, we both had a considerable track record, and Denny ended up um, <laughs> Denny ended up uh, moving back to Chicago briefly. Okay, and and then she moved back to L.A. and she's a hell of an engineer, but she didn't really know what she wanted to do. I, I you know I'm speaking for her, but we're still good friends, and and we you know we had kind of patched up our patched up our differences of being separated and stuff. And I'm working in studio B at the record plant around about probably 1981 or something like that. Okay. And Hey, Michael B Jim Fitzpatrick's on the phone for you. I'll pick it up in the canteen. I remember exactly where I picked it up in the canteen. Jim Fitzpatrick was, as you know, the chief tech and pretty much the go-to guy at Westlake for many, many years. Right. I pick up the phone. It's like midnight. And I'm in the, in the canteen and Fitz says, Hey, Michael B, we need, we need a studio manager. And I said, I know who you need. And Denny needed a job. They hired Denny King. Okay. 
So it was probably 1983, maybe 82, maybe. Right. And so Denny becomes the studio manager at Westlake at Beverly. At Westlake, 8447 Beverly Boulevard, right across from your friendly Taco Bell. And uh, next to the sushi bar. Great studio. That's where Westlake Studio A and Studio B are. Yep. Two legacy rooms. Just absolutely phenomenal. A, the home of off the wall, a lot of thriller, and so on. So Denny is now manager, and and it's perfect for her. One day, she calls me up and says, Barry Manilow is coming in to do a demo. Would you you mind coming in? I told him you were really great, and uh, so he's willing to use you for this demo. And so this is probably late 83, early... 84. Long story short, Barry ends up hiring me to do Paradise Cafe. Why? Because Denny turned me on to Barry Manilow. Nice. Yeah. She made that connection for me. And so I said, Denny, I'll do Paradise Cafe if you'll be my assistant engineer. Wow. Okay. And so the two of us worked on uh, Paradise Cafe together. To me, it's a really unique album. And I, I swear I'm not just kissing up. I really, I did just rebuy this album, I'll be honest. I have the original somewhere in one of my boxes. But uh, when I decided to talk to you about it, I went out and bought it again. Um, one thing that uh, I'm going to sound old and, and curmudgeonly for a second, I just wanted to listen to it on Spotify. And there's only like two songs from the album on Spotify. So you can't just hear it. And it's an album that really needs to be heard top to bottom, I think. But talk to me about what what it was like the first day when you first worked with Barry. Um, And and it's such a unique project. So I want to hear how how you remember that it came about. Well, I got a call from his uh, music manager, publishing manager, Eric Borenstein, and Eric told me, hey, Barry wants you to consider working on this album that he's doing. And for people who aren't familiar with 2AM Paradise Cafe, um, it, it's a bit of a departure for Barry. It's not pop. It's more jazz, blues kind of thing. And it's, it's a style of music that Barry has always loved. Right. He, you know, Barry, Barry grew up in New York and, and he, he loved that kind of music. So Eric called me and said, listen, he wants to do a jazz oriented album and he'd like you to do the engineering. And I said, oh, I'm flattered. And so, of course, you know, independent engineer in Los Angeles, you know, you'll record dogs howling at 3 a.m. at Hollywood Lake. Sure. But, you know, it's a gig. And but on top of that, you're right. Barry is a star. He is, he's a superstar. Right. I mean, I, I've been around and worked with McCartney, Ringo, George, all, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash, all these people. Mm-hmm. And Barry is a star. You just dropped some huge names. You're saying that they play on that. They all play on the same team. You put him at that same level. Yeah, yeah, They're, those guys are are big, yeah. but Barry has—he's got star quality. There's yeah. something about him. He he knows he's a star. He believes he's a star. He he thinks he's a star. Paul Anka was the same way. There's a type of star. So anyway, Eric called me and he said, "So can you come to rehearsals? Here's the address in North Hollywood." So I went went up to uh, the rehearsal studio in North Hollywood. And Barry had the whole band set up. And for those who don't know, this band he assembled was absolutely amazing. Right. You know, Barry loved Jerry Mulligan, the sax player. Mm-hmm. And he, Barry told me that he had fallen in love with Jerry Mulligan's music by hearing it on the movie I Want to Live, which was a classic 1952 black and white sort of almost film noir that Jerry Mulligan did the music to. I mean, Jerry Mulligan is a, you know, legendary sax player. Right. Shelly Mann 
on yeah. drums. You know, you can't say enough about Jelly Man. I mean, right. you know, he's a legendary jazz player in Los Angeles. Mundell Lowe, one of the tastiest hollow body electric guitar jazz, you know, influencers. Billy Mays on keyboards. And a gentleman on stand-up bass named George DeVivier, who was the, the, the most gentleman gentleman ever. Hmm. And so I watched these guys in rehearsal. I thought, oh, these are great tunes. Yeah, this is going to be great. Oh, this is really nice. It was just so relaxed. Right. I, I'm thinking, this is going to be a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. And Barry said, where do you want to record it? And so I had already worked with him in Studio C at Westlake. And by this time, you know, I should explain, I am a child of the record plant, but I am a grown-up of Westlake. Okay. Yeah, because there comes a point. I mean, when you start working at the record plant, you are in the family. And basically, I had to ask Chris's permission when I started working at outside studios, the first of which was Devonshire. Well, it's not so much permission as it is courtesy. courtesy. Right. So Barry said, where do you want to do this album? And I said, Studio C, Studio okay. C Westlake. So C, you, you know, it, the, the choice for Studio C at Westlake was a combination of things. We had that beautiful Neve console in there, Flying Faders. Mm-hmm a large enough control room that I would feel comfortable in because it, it's very much like Studio C at Record Plant, not quite as big or multi-leveled. Right. Studio C at Record Plant had, had a, um, a riser that went back. And um, the, room, the room has a surprisingly comfortably live sound. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's not a live room, right? but it's got a com comfortable, you know, and it also has those, things on the walls, those gobos that you could open them up and they'd be wood or yes. you close them and they'd be fabric. They'd be so, dampers. Yeah, there were, the, there were these giant, they were like the walls were on hinges. Right. It was like a gigantic, almost like a barn door on a hinge. And one side was much more reflective and the other side was more absorptive, I guess you'd say. Right. So you could tune the room to how you wanted it to feel. And by this time, you know, a lot of albums were being done during the day. And certainly Manilow is a day worker. He's more right. of a normal kind of worker as compared to, you know, Zappa or, or Stills. And right. so, on. so we went in and, and we were at rehearsal and I'm saying, these are great songs. God, these are, these are really, really good. And, and Brad, I have come to appreciate 2 a.m. Paradise Cafe much more now than I did shortly after it was made i thought that's eh, you know it's nice but you know when you're used to working with crosby stills and nash and zappa and the eagles and and stuff you know you don't think in terms of you know kind of melancholy jazz right kind of stuff and and so i i've come to appreciate it and it really is a good sounding it's album. a great so I'm again. I don't. I don't blow smoke unnecessarily, but I'm a cards on the table kind of guy. A couple of days ago, I you know I bought the record. I mean, I, I had to order it, and it finally arrived at the record store. I actually have a great record store here in Winter Park that I really like, and it sounds so cliche. But my car still has a CD player in it. And I'm like, wow, you know, I haven't used this. I don't think ever. And I put the CD in, and. I'm like in traffic. Now, it's not like 4.05 traffic at 5 in the afternoon. Orlando's a little bit lighter than that. So I put the CD in, and it, it just sounds so cliche. I'm almost embarrassed to even say it. But the, the music started, Barry on the piano and that gorgeous band, that amazing bass. And I'm in traffic, and, and your whole mood just changes. The whole... It, it was so calming. The night is, uh, It's amazing. It's an absolutely amazing record. No, no joke. So I really, it's uh, been a really sweet rediscovery for me. But, um, but carry on. I mean, the fact that Barry rented a rehearsal studio in North Hollywood and actually worked out the parts with these guys in advance. What, they were up there for a couple of weeks? You know, it was probably closer to just a week. You know, they might they might have actually only had three full days of rehearsal. Um, and 
And I, I went in and his assistant's name was a guy named Roger Wall, who, mm. who has since passed away, really fine young man. Mm. He was Barry's PA, personal assistant. Sure. And then he got stolen away by Liz Taylor. And that's, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. This is, you know, Barry was like an old Hollywood kind of superstar. Yeah. Liz Taylor would drop in the studio to say hi. And, oh, I'm going to have dinner over at Liz's tonight. You know, blah, no, blah, blah. No, I, I do not mean to interrupt and, and run down tangents, but I worked closely with Elizabeth probably for five years. I built all the music systems in her house. So I was there with, with Larry Fortinsky and that whole gang. Larry, wow. Larry's dog bit me in the that, butt. Um, did, what did you get the gig from meeting Liz up at the wedding? Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, through Michael. So I was so Michael and Michael Jackson and Elizabeth were tight, and then since I worked with Michael, she wanted me to work with her. So any carry on. I'm wow. so, I'm in, I'm enjoying it. But that's though. that's the kind of superstar. It's Barry such is. a small town, but yeah, keep going. Yeah, yep, very much, very much. So so we're up there, and and Roger is. I'm I'm drinking Valerian tea, which smells like dirty basketball shoes and yeah, because I, I had given up drinking alcohol by that time good for you and i was i was mellowing out with valerian tea and roger wall said what is that smell what's that horrible smell and i said oh man this is tea man it's like keeps my nerves calm right and so roger and i are standing there watching the band and he and he said do you have any idea how you're going to record this and i said well the normal way he said well you know barry wants to play the whole thing through all in one take i went oh <laughs> i need some more tea right <laughs> and so immediately i started running to because and i and i've done tons of live albums sure i mean everybody from zappa bongo fury to the eagles and so when you when you cut your teeth on recording live concerts you know that you only get one shot. Yep. So you got to have everything rolling at once. So basically, this was going to be a live recording at Westlake Studio C. Okay. So immediately, you know, I said, hey, Fitz, I need two 24s rolling in there. When one machine, you know, you can only get about 15 minutes of, of recorded audio on 2,500 feet of two-inch analog uh, 24 track. Right. And these songs total up to about 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So what do you do when your 15 minutes of recording tape run out? You have to obviously start rolling the second machine to record so that you don't miss anything in between. Follow me, people? Yeah. So basically, we're doing so a live album. So Barry wants to do the whole album as one take. Yep. Wow. And okay, that's how we did it seriously yeah every vocal you hear on that i begged barry to give me another shot at a vocal sound and he said no man that's a great vocal <laughs> i said okay and they are we used a four i used a 414 right on his vocal he played piano so he's sitting at the now was that the in studio c what they had that yamaha we had two yamahas we had two it? pianos but to, uh, you know butt to butt okay so they brought one in yeah Okay. But I'll tell you what, draping the pianos and isolating the pianos is an art to recording. I know what you're talking about, but just briefly explain what that means. There are some pickups you can buy that you attach to the piano, which keep it so that it doesn't pick up a lot of bleed from other instruments. But an acoustic piano is a resonant device. Right. So when you mic it, you have to be aware that there's going to be sound bleed coming from the drums and the guitar and the saxophone coming into the piano, unless you're very careful about isolating it. Right. And so the first thing you do is you, generally speaking, you lower it onto its low stick mm -hmm. so that the piano top, piano lid is only open about eight inches. Right. And you sneak in a couple microphones. Then you take a, something like a nice warm U87, Neumann U87, and you access down by the foot of the piano, which is where the low strings extend. Okay, now you've got your, your piano top only about eight inches open. 
your microphones are in there, but you're still going to get a ton of bleed. So you take some of the most high quality packing blankets known to mankind and you start where the music stand is on the piano and you drape it over the top of the piano so that you're covering the wood resonator and deadening it. And you also let that drape down over the opening in the piano. Well, that's all in well, well and good to a point, but you've got the entire underside of the piano that's going to be absorbing sound. Right. So you put another packing blanket over the edge of the piano opening so that it drapes all the way to the floor. And then you drape other packing blankets all the way around the piano so that there's no access to the underside of the piano. Right. Then you push a couple gobos or baffles up. And if you're really crazy and you got enough packing blankets, you do the same thing over the gobos and the baffles. And now you've done a pretty good job of isolating the piano from a lot, except of the, you know, the real low frequencies. Right. Amazingly, we started rolling tape and there was a couple stops and starts. There, there were a couple where, oh, let's start that over. Right. And I don't remember which song, but obviously with a 15 minute load of tape on one twenty-four track, you know, by the time you get toward the end of song number two, you're going to be pretty much done with that reel of tape. Right. So you roll the second machine, otherwise known as the B machine, and you're picking up everything exactly the same, same tracking assignment, et cetera, on the B machine. So that's how we did the album. Uh, you start rolling the A machine, you get a couple songs on it, and you roll the B machine before the A machine runs out. Yep. You you keep reloading, and they did play it all the way through, essentially. And all of the vocals are Barry's live vocals. We no did kidding. not overdub. We did not overdub one of Barry's vocals. So so the people that. Uh really don't understand this world uh, no but i mean this is this is a one in essence a one take all 11 songs you just it just kept going yeah that's, that's a, why they rehearsed it it's it's like being in a nightclub it's like being at the paradise cafe so to the best of your memory how how many days did it take before this thing before it really happened I mean, just at Westlake. Once you had everything set up. I would say, I I think we spent about two weeks. So We obviously had to overdub Sarah Vaughn's vocal part. Right. We also obviously had to overdub Mel Torme's vocal part. Mm -hmm. They did not sing live. Unbeknownst to anyone outside of you, me, and now the listening public, George DeVivier hit a wrong note. Okay. I could not live with it. He hit an A when it's supposed to be a D, <laughs> believe it or not. And, it, and, and, you, and I don't even remember the song. I, I, I honestly don't. So that stayed. Yeah, it, it, it bugged nope. you, but it, oh, you went back and punched it out? There's a janitor who is working at Westlake, and I do not remember his name. I paid him in cash. <laughs> I came in by myself and had him punch in one note. Wow. Just to, to fix that uh, that one yes. bass part. That's between you, me, <laughs> and, and the general public. And the point. general public. Yeah, the seven people. One that, Barry that does listen. not know it. Eric Bornstein does not know it. Nobody knows it. The other thing that nobody knows, including Barry, Sarah Vaughn has really unique pitch. Yes. Anybody in the world knows that. But Eric Bornstein and I sat one Saturday morning. And we used an H949 even-tide harmonizer, which at the time was state-of-the-art. Yeah, best you could buy. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Even-tide H949. Mm -hmm. And we tweaked probably 20 of her notes. No kidding. Yeah, we had to. Getting back. So, Barry. So, what? I mean, what was he like? What time did he come in? What did he eat? What was his routine? He was hands-off. Okay. He very definitely knew what he wanted, but he didn't sit over your shoulder and watch what you did or do this. He would sit there. He loves doing crossword puzzles. Okay. He'd sit there and 
do a crossword puzzle while I'm putting together mixes on the Neve. Now, I labored over these mixes. I really, really wanted them to be good. I believe it. And so we took our time mixing. And he would come in every morning at 10 o'clock, and he'd sit there and he'd work the New York Times crossword puzzle. Okay. And every once in a while, he'd say, is that all we have of that? Can we get a little more of that? And then he'd go back to his crossword puzzle. And a couple times he brought in his beagles named Bagel and something else. Okay. Beagles. He brought them in. That was, you know, that was the, his, his MO on doing that. Right. And every once in a while, he would say, hey, you want to go for a walk? And we'd go out and we'd go out the back door and, you know, at studio at Beverly. You go out the back door into the alley and we'd walk down the alley and walk down the side streets up, you know, walk a few blocks and right. just chat, you know, yeah. just talk about stuff, you know, pretty amazing. Nobody would bother it. Nobody would see us, you know, here's Barry Manilow walking down their street. And, right. And it's a normal neighborhood, you know, mm -hmm. that neighborhood for your listeners right around the corner from uh, one of the <laughs> premier recording studios of all time where Thriller was recorded, you go out the back door or walk a half a block and you're just walking in normal houses. It's just houses, yeah. I mean, normal houses. I right. don't mean mansions. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like, you know, normal houses. Yep. And so Barry and I'd walk up and down. He was, he was so cordial and patient and fun-loving. He had a great sense of humor. He has mm -hmm. a great sense of humor. Just, you know, a sensitive guy. He was on the phone a lot, you know, talking to the girls. Right. You know? But we worked normal days, 10 a.m. to like four or five. And, and I, did, I really didn't look it up, but I'm guessing Barry would have been in his early 40s at this point. Or Boy, man, that is a great question. But I mean, he was a young guy is my point. Yeah, he's, he's pretty young still. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and these musicians that were with him, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Good them, point. These are older dudes. Right. And these are, are well-seasoned, serious players. They've been everywhere. Yeah. And he knew that. And, yeah. And so he's treating them with a lot of respect. And, and it was, I mean, the whole thing had to have been cool. It just had yeah. to have been really special. You know, you know, Brad, that's a really good point. Because there was, it was an equitable dynamic that these guys were his musical seniors. You don't want to say musical superiors, but these guys had some serious stuff under their belts. And, and, and I'm not, there's no part of me that's putting Barry Mandelow down by saying this. But yeah, he's kind of the Copacabana guy. I mean, he's kind of the pop guy that you already alluded to. And now he's he's getting in with some pretty serious cats. And there, there had to have been a, a lot of respect uh, both ways. Yep. So I'm not trying to draw comparisons in the least, but there, there's parts of this record that, uh, I mean, I worked on Quincy Jones back on the block. If you dig into that album, it's a totally different type of album, but in a way it was Quincy's way of paying homage to, uh, you know, Sarah Vaughan and Miles and Dizzy and having these guys come in. And it, it certainly wasn't like 2 a.m. where it was, you know, a one... Uh, I, I'm still blown away that basically this album is one take, kind of a, a full package. But it was working with these guys, and it was Quincy's way of kind of giving them a nod and saying, you were a tremendous part of music history. Right. And I want you to be a part of this. So I, that's kind of what I get from Barry, is that he knows these guys are not teenagers anymore, and let's do something really cool together. What what what's your what's your takeaway? I mean, well, people it, don't it was really do pretty, albums like this anymore. It was some pretty tricky editing to, you know, I I defy anyone to, and I wouldn't even be able to know where one song song ends and the other song starts. Right. With the razor blade, because remember, okay. this is not digital editing. No, this is where you cut it with a razor blade. You know, remember 1984 digital was still young. Very young. Yeah. 
and the analog sounded better. Yep. So we ended up, this also is only between you, me, and the general public now. Mm -hmm. We ended up going from the quarter-inch analog masters. Sure. They just, they sounded, sounded a lot better than the digital. All right. And any final thoughts on this album, um, on, on Barry's album? Well, just a personal note, mm-hmm. and that is that I have really grown to like this album more and more as time goes by. It's, it's worth listening to. It's worth dropping a needle on and letting it go all the way through. That's the beauty of it being on CD now that you can listen to the whole thing without having to flip it over. Right. And, um, and, and it's an album that I'm surprisingly proud of. I didn't, I, I, I don't necessarily associate, you know, Hey, I did a good job on this, but this thing stands up after 36 years. I don't want to admit that, but I think you're right. So yeah, 36, 37 years. I, I had, I didn't forget about this album. I'm going to be honest, but I think of all people was Russ Ragsdale. I think he said that he occasionally uses this as kind of a reference album and that's what reintroduced it's like wait a minute and it was just this this quick little uh uh flash pop of of memories and i'm like i i gotta talk to michael b about that so um but i think this was just kind of a a cool important often overlooked album that i thought would be kind of fun to get a bit of the backstory on and i like the fact that you and i are both attached to it you know i mean we're both it it took place at Westlake Studio C at a time, you know, when we were both, we, we both know it's, it's genetics. In all uh, cards face up on the table, I was probably vacuuming floors and maybe, you know, going out and getting your sushi or something at that point. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, but I, I do remember it. I remember, you know, because I'm a kid of the 70s and it's, it's Barry Manilow. It's like Copacabana and it's like there's yeah. Barry Manilow. I, I seem to remember he had like red glasses or something. Maybe I'm just making that up in my imagination. But but he well, was just... probably those big '70s glasses that cover half your face. Yeah. yeah. And, you know. And okay. I... So so you might have been vacuuming and going out to get sushi. But the really interesting thing about working at a studio like Westlake, that that is a small independently owned studio mm-hmm. or the record plant, there is not one unimportant person working there. Every single person, I'm getting goosebumps again thinking about this because I don't know if this kind of mindset exists anymore, but the person who's vacuuming the floor cares just as much about the product that comes out of that studio as the guy who's pushing the faders. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not going to argue with that. And I'll even take it a step further, and you're going to be familiar with this this phrase, but I often say that I'm a graduate of Westlake University. And if you you could not hang out in that tech shop, um, now Fitz, now Jim Fitzpatrick was just a teeny bit before my time. I was more with Mustafa and Stretch and uh, and Sikedi. those guys <laughs> and Sakedi. Holy cow! And to be around those guys, it was an honor, and I, I wouldn't trade one minute I, if I could go back in time and just hang in that shop a little bit longer. It, it was just an amazing time. So yeah, it was in osmosis. You just you you could not you could not walk away from that time unaffected. And a lot of people that listen to my podcast or come to my events really don't know what it was like. But the collaboration of everyone from the techs, and it's very kind of you to mention the runners and and the the receptionist and the second engineers. It was, you know, being at Westlake or being at, at uh, what I call a top shelf studio was an honor and you took it very seriously. And it was just, yeah. you were so proud of, you'd go to Tower Records and this record came out and we worked on it and there's our name. And uh, it was yeah, just- Yeah, that was, that was always big. But I'm, I'm going to backtrack on, on something that you said. I think everyone in any walk of life can be familiar with that feeling of throwing your whole heart and soul into something. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't have to work at, you know, 
the top drawer studio in the world, working with the biggest superstar, to know that feeling of, of connectedness with something that you really, really care about. Right. It doesn't matter what it is. When you connect with something that you really, really care about, then it doesn't matter whether you're on a tractor hoeing a field or if you're standing at a 7-Eleven working behind the counter and you want it to you know, look the best that it can be. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If you care about stuff you're doing, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. And it's very fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just love what you're doing and, and do it. And so I don't, I don't think there's any difference between, between a, a, you know, a guy who sits in the studio and makes hit records and, and a guy who picks up my trash every Tuesday morning. It, it, uh, I really don't think there is that difference. You just put your heart into doing the best you can do wherever you are. And everybody can relate to that. Nice. Everybody. Can. That's all we did. Right. That's all we were doing, Brad. Right. We were just doing, we were just doing the best we could do. It's, it's I, fun to do that. Michael B. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, reconnecting with you. Um, I yeah, appreciate yeah, your, fun chatting. your generous time. And uh, we will absolutely do this again. We're going to pick another record to talk about and uh, keep digging deeper. Thanks, pal. All right, my friend, have a good night. Likely, take care. Stay safe. In the Studio, the podcast is produced by Maddie Sundberg. Theme music performed by Buddy Nuanez. Artwork by Andy Healy. Studio electronics provided by Golden Age Project and studio acoustics provided by Acoustic Sciences Corporation. My name is Brad Sundberg. Thanks so much for hanging out with us in the studio.